This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 9th. Today, why the Department of Justice is intervening on President Trump's behalf, a K-shaped economy, and the future of karaoke. Eugene Carroll is a journalist and author who last year went public with accusations that Donald Trump had raped her more than two decades prior in a department store. Carroll talked about those accusations last year with one of our colleagues, reporter Beth Reinhardt, and a warning that it's difficult to hear. I got a knee up high enough to push him out and off. Right. I'm going to guess it was, you know, it was a very short amount of time mm-hmm. that he had penetrated. It was generally against my will. Definitely. Donald Trump would later deny those allegations. I have no idea who this woman is. This is a woman who's also accused other men of things, as you know. Uh, it is a totally false accusation. Eugene Carroll filed a defamation lawsuit against him, essentially alleging that his denial was false and he was defaming her and thus he owed her damages. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. This kind of exploded into the news last night because as the case seemed to be on course for discovery and just proceedings in New York State Court, the Justice Department intervened, moving the case to federal court and asking a federal judge to substitute the U.S. government as the defendant in the case instead of President Trump personally. So I think in order to understand why this is significant, it's worth like thinking out how this would play out if this weren't the president. Like if Donald Trump were just regular Donald Trump and being sued by someone for defamation, how would this case play out in normal circumstances? Well, I think that's a complicated question. If Donald Trump were not the president and he were just a businessman with no affiliation with the government, then this case would just proceed through state court. You know, the Justice Department certainly wouldn't get involved in a defamation lawsuit involving a private citizen. If Donald Trump were not the president, but he worked for the government, you might see an action like this. You know, the Justice Department does pretty routinely intervene in state lawsuits when they involve government employees to kind of take over them. But the fact that this is now going to be playing out in federal court rather than state court, why are some people concerned about that? Well, they're concerned for a couple reasons. One, the reason that the Justice Department is is asking to move this to federal court and is asking to make the U.S., the government, the defendant, rather than President Trump, is they're saying he was acting in the scope of his job when he made these comments saying that what Gene Carroll describes did not happen. So people are sort of outraged, like, how is that on the job 
conduct? Why should Justice Department lawyers be getting involved? What, at the end of the day, is a dispute between two people about what happened two decades ago? Like, how does that implicate on-the-job conduct? The Justice Department argues, well, court precedent says it does. Basically, if you're a federal employee, almost anything you say or do while on the job can count as on-the-job conduct. So we have to intervene here. The attorney general actually just spoke at a press conference and said, look. The case law is very clear. Uh, Because we are a representative democracy, officials who are elected and answer press questions while they're in office, even if those questions relate to their personal activity uh, and could bear upon their personal fitness, is in fact in the course of federal employment and can be uh, therefore certified uh, under the Westfall Act. And we have a specific case where someone was accused of defaming somebody, a congressman, and courts determined that counts as on-the-job conduct, even though it had to do with something going on in that congressman's personal life. But then presumably, if the president is now going to be defended by the Department of Justice rather than by his own personal lawyers, taxpayers are the ones who are now paying for his defense, correct? Sort of. So You know, this has really been framed as like the Justice Department is defending Trump, and they are certainly making a move that is defending Trump, right? Like no matter what a court ultimately decides, this is going to slow down this woman's lawsuit. You know, this case was on pace to proceed like towards discovery and potentially a deposition with Trump. And now the Justice Department has intervened. Taxpayer paid lawyers have intervened to get involved and slow this down. But they're not so much saying... We just want this case to proceed and we're going to stand in for Trump. They're saying we want to get Trump out of this case altogether. Certainly, taxpayers would theoretically be on the hook if the court grants uh, the request to replace Trump with the government in the sort of defense chair in this case. But really, I think if they do that, it is legal analysts would say it's likely step one to the case getting thrown out altogether. So if this lawsuit was filed last year, why is it that now the Department of Justice is stepping in and trying to change the venue and change the representation? That's a great question. And I think legal analysts we talk to say that's kind of the most suspicious part of this. Typically, when the Justice Department intervenes in cases where um, federal employees get sued in state courts, they do like right away when the issue is brought to their attention. And this case has been going on um, for nearly a year now. So what happened last month is that a court a state court kind of greenlit this to go forward. And E. Jean Carroll's side was pressing for a DNA sample from Trump to compare to some clothing that E. Jean Carroll says she was wearing during this encounter two decades ago. They were also pressing to depose Trump, to interview him under oath. Um, That all seemed to be on course, and then the Justice Department stepped in. Her side says, of course, look, this is just a bid for delay. And, you know, no matter what a court ultimately decides, you are going to delay this lawsuit. The Justice Department's position seems to be, look, we just got a memo from the White House and acted on that. And that's how this normally works. But the timing, legal analysts tell us, is, is quite suspicious because the lawsuit has been going on and it's been so publicized and contested for so long. Well, it's interesting because even though this is a defamation lawsuit and basically the central question is whether or not the president was wrong in in calling her a liar, that 
to get to that question, you sort of have to investigate these original allegations. And in some ways, it seems like either intentionally or unintentionally, this is a way to kind of to to vet those original allegations in a very public way. Yeah, absolutely. So you'll, you know, her side is pressing to depose him. So he'll be, if this were to be, have been able to proceed, then he would have potentially been forced to answer questions about this. You would have the DNA comparison that I mentioned. And theoretically, his side could depose her too. So even though this is really about whether the president defamed her to get at that question, you kind of have to investigate the substance of what happened two decades ago, which is difficult, but they were going to try to do that. So what is going to happen next in this case? So I think what will happen next is a federal court will either decide, yes, you can substitute in the U.S. government or no, you can't. In that instance, maybe it goes back to state court. I'm not exactly sure what would happen after that. It could ultimately kill um, Gene Carroll's lawsuit. But even if it doesn't, it's going to slow it down, which is, you know, sort of a win for Donald Trump. This Justice Department has taken a sort of remarkably broad view of the president's powers, and they have sought to intervene in a lot of cases where the president is under scrutiny. I think one of the most notable examples is this series of, President Trump has filed a series of personal lawsuits trying to prevent people from getting access to his personal um, financial information, and the Justice Department has intervened on his side in some of those cases. This Justice Department seems to hold this view of a very strong executive who shouldn't be bothered by congressional investigations and state investigations and private lawsuits, and they have shown a willingness to throw their muscle behind that view. Matt Zapatosky covers the Justice Department for The Post. On Friday, we got the latest jobs report, our look at what's going on in the labor market, which experienced incredible duress in the spring. I am Heather Long, economics correspondent at The Washington Post. The good news is the U.S. gained back nearly 1.4 million jobs in August. The official unemployment rate fell to 8.4%. That's the lowest unemployment rate since March, but it's still one of the worst in modern history for the United States. This is definitely a glass half empty, glass half full story. On the upside, we added more jobs than expected in August. On the downside, So far, of the 22 million jobs lost in March and April, we've only brought back 48%, so less than half. There's still a long way to go. Before we talk about that second half of jobs, for the jobs that have started to come back, what kinds of jobs are those and what are the sectors where we're seeing things begin to recover? 
we're seeing recovery across the board. And obviously the dips were the deepest in things like restaurants and hotels and retail. And so there were a lot of gains in those sectors, although the quote hospitality sector is still down the most. Uh, about a quarter of jobs are still missing in that sector. What was interesting in August and gave people a little bit of a red flag is a quarter of those jobs that were added were temporary jobs. Hmm. So over 200,000 of them were census workers. I've had a couple knock on my door lately, and they are only going to work for a few more weeks, and then those jobs are gone. Similarly, in the business sector, sort of the white collar, you know, office, we used to call them office jobs, whatever we call them now, work from home jobs, over 100,000 of those jobs that came back were also marked as temporary. So that's unusual. We don't usually see this many temporary jobs. Another one of those kind of red flags that all is not totally well here. So in addition to this huge asterisk that is on these numbers, which is the fact that many of them are temporary jobs, we have the fact that many of these jobs have not actually come back. So what are the challenges that are facing the other part of the economy that hasn't seen much of a recovery? The challenges are enormous. You think about those sectors like hotels or airlines who have warned they're going to do more layoffs this fall. Uh, Restaurants. I certainly walk around my neighborhood in Washington, D.C. and still see a lot of restaurants that have maybe one or two tables full that are sort of limping along. Some have closed. And so that's the second half of the job recovery that we need to get those jobs back. And right now it looks pretty bleak. One of the most telling comments on the economy came Friday when Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell told NPR. I guess I would just say the recovery is is continuing. We do think it will get harder from here because of those areas of the economy that are so directly affected by the pandemic still. There's going to be a long period, we believe, where we'll have to take our time and see those, those people get back to work. So what he means is, yes, the recovery is underway, but in terms of getting back the jobs, the the second half of the jobs we're trying to get back, that's likely to be a much more challenging endeavor. Think about it like the jobs that came back this summer were the low-hanging fruit. You know, as, as businesses reopened, as companies got going again, of course they brought back some workers. But the problem is that places that are still closed, the places that are still limping along are places like restaurants and hotels and airlines. And those sectors are really not going to be back to even half, if not full capacity, until we have a vaccine. And that could be many months, if not longer, away. And so those jobs are just going to take a long time. We're also at this point where it's now been about a month and a half since we saw the expiration of federal unemployment benefits. There were a lot of fears when that money was running out that this was going to have a grave impact on all the people who have been basically depending on this to be able to continue living where they're living, to be able to feed their families. Now that those federal unemployment benefits have ceased to exist, have we started to see the signs of the impact of that on the people who had been using them before? There's definitely a lot of anecdotal data. And my colleague Eli Rosenberg and I wrote about this at the end of August. Uh, We profiled people who have received eviction notices. Uh, They haven't been evicted yet, but they didn't pay August rent or they were late on August rent and they were really worried about paying September rent. Uh, Same thing, you, you talk to just about any food bank and they'll tell you, look, 
or still have these long, long lines of people that need help uh, just being able to feed themselves right now. So in that sense, a lot of the indicators are still pretty bleak. Um, there's been a this U.S. Census has been doing surveys of America during this pandemic, and they recently restarted one of their surveys, and it's finding similar numbers of people who are hungry, um, particularly families with kids. So there's still a lot of pain, no doubt about it. The, the sort of maybe slight silver lining, uh, President Trump did take action in August to provide an extra $300 a week to unemployed families. It's not the extra $600 they were getting from uh, April through July, but at least it's something. And um, over the last time I checked, over 45 states have now been approved for that program, and quite a few are starting to get that money out. The downside, it's only going to last. There's only enough money for about three to four weeks. So by the end of September, we're going to be back at that really precarious place. So thinking back to July, when Congress essentially let federal unemployment benefits expire, one of the arguments that you heard from Republicans was that the fact that those benefits were so significant had basically created the situation where people were disincentivized to go back to work. And they were concerned that there were all these cases where people would rather just hang out at home and collect unemployment from the federal government rather than really trying in earnest to get a new job. So the fact that we've seen the jobs numbers creep up a little bit since then, is that a reflection of that maybe Republicans were right? Or is it more complicated than that? Overwhelmingly, the evidence does not point to the Republican argument that people were just lazy and sitting around and not getting jobs and collecting unemployment. There are certainly a handful of individuals who were in that circumstance. And it's certainly true that about two-thirds of workers on unemployment in recent months were earning more on unemployment when the extended benefits were in place until the end of July than they would have if at their prior job that they had before the pandemic hit. Um, I think where we really see the strongest evidence against what Republicans are saying is there was expected to be a decline in the number of people on unemployment. So if you were just there because you were sort of wanted to mooch off the government and then those extra benefits went away, why would you stay on unemployment? Instead, we've actually seen an increase in applications throughout August for unemployment, suggesting that more people are getting laid off and uh, more people still need a lot of help. And is there a prospect in which Congress will take action on this sooner rather than later, especially considering the fact that it's leading up to an election and you would think that the congressional Republicans, President Trump, even Democrats, they'd all just want to find something to agree on to be able to get people some help before the election. Is that going to happen? Sitting here today, I would say it's a 50-50 chance if it happens. And that's pretty mind-boggling given that at the moment we have 29 million people still receiving unemployment insurance and millions of businesses, this particularly small businesses that are worried about you know, shutting forever. There's a clear cry for help in every congressional district. And like you said, it's, it's surprising that Congress isn't taking action. 
here's the latest. And I, I have to say it's not particularly encouraging. The Senate Republicans are debating and trying to pass this week basically a $500 billion package. It would have a little bit of money for unemployed, a little bit of money for schools, a couple of other top priorities for Republicans. On the flip side, the House Democrats back in May, uh, they passed a basically $2.5 trillion bill. So normally in negotiations, you just say, oh, let's meet in the middle. But there's a big, big gap between $2.5 trillion and $500 billion. And I, you know, that's just a really wide chasm. And that's why a lot of reporters now are getting more pessimistic about whether something can pass. You know, since the beginning of the pandemic, we've heard a lot of different prognostications about what an economic recovery for the U.S. could look like, right? That there was talk about a V-shaped curve, and then there was talk about about a W-shaped curve, and a Nike check. And, and I'm wondering, at this point, what type of curve of recovery are we looking at, and where are we on that curve? The best letter right now is the letter K. We've always in America in recent years been living in sort of a two economy, you know, the economy for the well-off and the economy for the working class. But right now it is so stark, the differences for the basically the top half of America. So the people who have money in the stock market were back at record highs in August. Home sales are booming, so people who have savings are bargain hunting for homes, and a lot of white-collar jobs have come back, so people are able to work from home in those white-collar jobs, and they're able to create those pods for their kids to study together and these types of things. It's a total flip side. This recession, this pandemic has deeply, deeply hit low-wage workers. Those are those workers in those hotel and restaurant jobs and retail jobs that have clearly been hit the hardest. We know renters have been hit far harder this time around. That's why we're talking about an eviction crisis potentially in this country instead of a foreclosure crisis, which hit homeowners in the last recession. Just thinking as well about the differences between white workers and black and Hispanic workers. Somebody wisely pointed out on Friday after the jobs report came out that the black unemployment rate, particularly for women, is basically the equivalent in August of what the worst white male rate was in April. And that just underscores this this such uneven impact and such an uneven recovery that we're having. Heather Long is an economics correspondent for The Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. And now, one more thing. 
In the style and feature sections, we've been looking at how the pandemic is going to change a lot of common experiences and some that might even be endangered. That's Post reporter Fritz Hahn. He usually writes about bars and nightlife. But of course, during the pandemic, he's had to change gears. We've looked at whether anyone's going to want to go back to blowing out birthday candles because they're just spreading germs all over their guests, or whether we're ever going to wait in line at a buffet to share utensils again. My recent contribution was looking at the dangerous present and the future of karaoke. The most dangerous thing about karaoke is exactly what we love about karaoke. It's singing. And so you think about it. You're at your favorite bar, dark, crowded, maybe not well ventilated, and you have a whole bunch of people singing along at the top of their lungs. That is a recipe for spreading droplets to everyone else. And of course, it's karaoke. No one wants to wear a mask while they're singing. So after a few drinks, you put your arm around your friends and you're singing along to a new Taylor Swift song. And guess what? Someone might be spreading the coronavirus. And for that reason, a lot of states, even the ones that are reopening, are not comfortable bringing back karaoke. For example, in California, it's explicitly banned in reopening orders. It's safer to dine in at a restaurant than it is to do karaoke in groups, at least according to the government. I spoke to a number of karaoke enthusiasts who are obviously bummed that they are not able to be out there singing. And I think for a number of them, they're feeling a great loss. It's a loss of community. It's a loss of socialization. For people who get together at the same karaoke bar at the same time every week, or people who are involved in karaoke leagues, and yes, we have those in D.C. because we like to make everything competitive. At the same time, they're also worried about the bars they love closing down because, let's face it, a lot of the best karaoke bars in the area are not exactly the biggest, poshest, or most popular. The perfect places to do karaoke are often, you know, basement dive bars or a corner bar, somewhere like that that's not as prepared to go on forever without revenue the way that some restaurants are. And it's not like most karaoke bars can pivot to something else during the pandemic. So I turned to a local expert, Jesse Rausch, who is the founder of District Karaoke and the United Karaoke League. He's been fielding suggestions from participants. What if we put plastic screens in front of the singers? What if we had disposable microphone covers? What if the audience submitted the songs electronically so they didn't have to come up to the DJ booth and hand in their request? What if everyone just promised to wear masks and sit six feet apart? And, you know, he said, I really love that these people believe in the power of karaoke. And so I think we will have karaoke again. I think it's more likely that Japanese-style karaoke, often known as room karaoke, will come back first. That's when you just get a bunch of your friends together in a little eight-foot-by-eight-foot room, and there's only a couple of you, and you take turns singing songs to each other. I think that's probably safer because you could go with your pod to that, and everyone could sing karaoke, and it'll taste a bit. But I think that the karaoke that we all love, or at least the karaoke that we all know, is going to have to wait till they're a vaccine. The karaoke singers that I talk to understand this. They're pretty aware that what they're doing is inherently a risky activity, and it will take a vaccine before we're all able to get in a room like that. But I'm pretty sure that most of them already have their first song picked out. Fritz Hahn covers nightlife for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. 
If you're a person who is still on Facebook, you should join our Post Reports Facebook group. I'm there along with about a thousand of our listeners, and it's a place for conversations about the podcast, the news, and what it's like living in these strange times. To join, go to facebook.com slash group slash post reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.